Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is the Reverend Canon Liz Easton. The Reverend Canon Liz Easton is an Episcopal priest who works on the Bishop of Nebraska's staff. Originally from the Pacific Northwest, her travels throughout Nebraska have inspired in her a real love for small places and big landscapes. She believes that congregations in this part of the world have something unique to tell the larger church about what it means to be a person of faith at this particular moment in time. Canon Easton enjoys writing, reading, and traveling. She co-hosts the podcast, Popping Collars, which explores the intersection of religion and popular culture. Canon Liz, thanks for being here. <laughs> thanks for having me, Stuart. <laughs> um, we were just talking before the, uh, we started uh, recording, and I talked about the, the, the garb, the religious garb. We were talking about uniforms and this sort of thing. And I've just realized in reading your bio that I wonder how many people – don't know how to refer to you. Sure. Do they refer to you as the Reverend Canon, uh, the Honorable Reverend <laughs> Liz? Yeah. I always tell people that I prefer to be called Liz, which is true. I'm much more comfortable with a first name. Um, in our tradition, canon is a particular word that's used to describe a particular ministry or a type of job. So people often in a more formal setting will call me Canon Easton or Canon Liz. And when I was a parish priest, people would call me Mother Liz, which is the obvious corollary with father. So I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about the hierarchy. Sure. Uh, because I think some of this language can seem quite opaque to people that, that aren't familiar with the uh, ordering of um, the organization of any particular religion and, and certainly not maybe the Episcopalian. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is sort of language that has become a little bit arcane and lost to us. And it's also a thing that we cling to, I think for good reason, to preserve part of the tradition. Um, so in the Episcopal Church, we have maybe you could say four orders of ministry. The first and the biggest and the most important one is the order of the laity, which is all lay people, everyone who has been baptized. Um, there are also deacons who are ordained to a particular ministry that really has to do with bridging the needs of the world with the needs of the church. So um, a deacon is an ordained minister who usually has some sort of social ministry outside and will come back to the church and say, hey, we really need to be aware of, say, the um, particular issues around homelessness in our neighborhood, or sometimes um, advocacy around something like climate change, for example, um, and come back and help the church have conversations about that. Uh, priests are ordained uh, in sacramental ministries, which means that um, their ministry involves celebrating the Holy Eucharist or communion, um, baptizing, marrying, burying, kind of the whole nine yards of a person's life. And in most cases, a priest is also in charge of caring for the souls of a particular congregation, a community of people. And then bishops are ordained to oversee a large area of the church, what we call dioceses. Here in Nebraska, it's the Diocese of Nebraska. And their ministry is to be a pastor to all of the priests and deacons in the diocese, and also to sort of oversee the whole operation of the thing, the whole, it's a big kind of vision type ministry. Without putting you to a history lesson. Sure. 
my upbringing is in the Anglican faith out of the Church of England. Mm -hmm. And I believe there is some connection between that and uh, your particular uh, Episcopalian religion, but I'm not sure if I'm understanding that correctly yeah. or, or how I should understand that. No, you definitely are. So um, the Anglican tradition uh, originated in, in England with the Church of England, as you just said, and now is a worldwide communion of churches that come from that same birthplace in England, in the English Reformations. And the Episcopal Church is the member of the Anglican communion that is in the United States and also in parts of Southeast Asia and the Caribbean and South America. Don't forget anyway. Uh, there's a lot of, there's okay. a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your own personal faith background and, and how you came to be uh, more, as it were, professionally involved and called to, to this ministry. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the Episcopal church in Seattle, Washington, which is where I was born and raised. Um, my maternal grandmother emigrated to the United States from Northern Ireland just after World War II. So she brought the Anglican tradition to Seattle, where my mom's family was raised. Um, and they were just always uh, involved in their local Episcopal churches. And when my parents got married, they found an Episcopal church in the neighborhood where they settled down. And that was the church where I grew up and was baptized and eventually the church that sponsored me um, for ordination in the church. And I had a very typical um, growing up in a church environment, I think. Maybe nothing is typical, but we went to church most Sundays. By the time that my brother and I were old enough to stay home alone, it was sort of our decision whether we would attend church that day or not. And most of the time, I probably did. Um, I had great youth groups going up that I was really involved in. I went to a Jesuit high school, which had a really big impact on my faith, mainly from the social justice background. We had a lot of um, teachers who were Jesuit priests and had been really involved in um, in a lot of the issues around social justice that um, and liberation theology the Jesuits are so famous for championing. So that was really important for my formation. But I always remained an Episcopalian. That was just kind of a part of my identity. And I got to college, and I think like a lot of young people, I just had I had that moment where I had to decide: Is this faith going to be mine? And, you know, am I going to own it, or is it going to be um, an inheritance that I pass bring along with me because it's nice, or is it going to be a thing that I completely turn away from? And I got involved in a couple of student ministries um, that were Episcopal and Lutheran and Catholic, just kind of depending on what was going on in my life. And I had a really powerful experience as a college student um, of really basically falling in love with Jesus for the first time, that I felt a connection to sort of the gospel stories, to the sacramental life of the church, mainly to receiving communion on a regular basis, to um, kind of the the people who pass along our faith through writing and theology became a big part of my life. And that just grew and grew until I sort of felt like this is a thing that I could devote my whole life to in a, in a professional way, as you said, which wasn't, you know, people, I think when they ask that question, sometimes want to know of like a lightning bolt story or like a moment where I escaped death and promised to devote my life to the church. And I didn't have that. My uh, being called, to become a priest was a lot like anyone else's call to do a thing. 
it was sort of a connection of things that I was good at and loved and also things that challenged me and felt like an invitation to grow deeper. And that all just kind of came together. you find that people are awed by the devotion that you found? I'm thinking about that in a context of a large population of America that is disengaged in the work that it is doing. Mm -hmm. And so really what we're thinking about there is most people have some kind of uh, for-profit job working for an employer. And we know from the data that most of them are not engaged with the work they do. They feel less connected to the purpose mm -hmm. of that organization. And so I wonder if, if when you encounter people uh, day in and day out, that they seem awed by the fact that you have this devotion. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to frame it. And I'm not sure. If they are, they haven't said it that way. I think that there, I often say, I said this especially when I was a parish priest, which parish churches are just run by the devotion of volunteers, of people who work a day job and then show up at night and show up early in the morning to like really do the business of the church. And I was always awed by them that like they would leave their corporate work and come and choose to spend their free time to the ministry of this place that we all love. So I would always joke, and it was only like half a joke, that I'm such a bad Christian, they have to pay me to do it. Because that really is what it looked like. Like I've, almost every day, and this remains to be true, I have to sort of pinch myself and say like, you, you lucked out and you need to remember how lucky you are that you get paid to basically explore my faith and love people and, um, you know, try to, try to make this thing run <laughs> farther into the future. Like it's just such an incredible gift. So I don't know if people feel a sense of awe of it. I think a lot of our, what we imagine we know about clergy of any faith tradition is not necessarily true. And I think that uh, the sort of inherited cultural assumptions about reverence and awe around clergy people is just lost. You know, uh, that has to do with, the, of course, the scandals of the church over the years, the church losing its credibility in lots of ways. Um, and then church attendance is down and I don't know. So like you asked me earlier before we were, uh, when we were waiting to get started, what people think about me wearing a clerical collar. And that varies, but I think a lot of times people don't know what that is. They think it's sort of a fashion choice that I made that day, which I always think is more fascinating. Like, what, ask me what kind of person I am that I put a piece of plastic around my neck 
as a fashion choice. <laughs> that would be more interesting <laughs> even than being a priest. But So I don't know. I think some of it's lost and people aren't thinking about it at all. Ordinarily, I would want to broaden the discussion and uh, amplify it and become a little more profound. But now I'm moved to ask, uh -huh. what do you feel about the fashion mm. of wearing both the high and the daily regalia yeah. of, of the office? Yeah. There are a few. That's a good that, That's a good question. And there are a few, kind of a few different areas of church clothing um, that we wear. I, most priests um, in Episcopal and Roman Catholic and Lutheran and other traditions wear basically a version of what I'm wearing right now at some point of their week, which is a black shirt with a um, plastic band around the neck um, called a clerical collar. And so that's sort of like everyday wear, like street wear, I guess. And then there are any number of other, you know, pieces of clothing that you wear for sacred things, like when you're in church and celebrating a service of the church. So when it comes to the day-by-day -day wear, I, I feel like I've always had kind of an ambivalent relationship with it. This was clothing that was designed to be worn by men. So it's only been in recent innovations that um, clerical clothing has become more comfortable and even fit <laughs> women's bodies. Like any other uniform, there's a an element of erasure, which is important, I think, that your individualism as a person is being sort of obscured by the uniform, the symbol of um, what you are to represent in the world. But if you're a person who likes clothing and kind of wants to put to look put together, that that's a conundrum. You know, like, how am I going to wear this thing on a daily basis? It makes... Um, the whole capsule wardrobe phenomenon a lot easier. If you're at all a minimalist, having a uniform is easy. And um, this one is a church-issued uniform. And then in terms of the, um, the kind of sacred clothing, like all the vestments, which are usually really ornate and historical, kind of precious to a particular community, I always feel um, reverent wearing them and always a little a little bit diminutive again it's clothing that was made for men and usually men who are kind of tall so there's an element of it that for me still feels a little bit like playing dress up and that's humbling and i remind myself that you know there's something to that you know i i think the the history and the purpose of the trappings to many of our institutions whether they be the judicial institutions or religious institutions or some other professional or political institution are designed to on the one hand intimidate you with the majesty of of those institutions but also to elevate them because their reputation and their purpose in society is is so important yeah i think absolutely um and in the church there are things that um that are given special attention because they're set aside for a particular role and the vestments that a priest wears would be an example of that and it depends on the type of church if it's a church that um has a more what we would call a low church background a more protestant background the vestments might not be quite as rich or ornate in another church that's maybe been around for hundreds and hundreds of years that has collected these things and held them really dear um, and set them apart, they can be really more richly ornate. And But the bottom line is that they always come from the community. So every time I put on something that, you know, is in the back of the closet in the back of the church and that they've kept it special and take good care of it and I put it over my head, it's a reminder of um, just all the people who have lovingly cared for that place and sort of put 
certain priorities around the things that they care for. You mentioned just a few minutes ago perceptions and assumptions that people make about um, both the practice of religion and uh, your role uh, within that. I'm wondering what assumptions people make about the life of clergy in general, but maybe specifically about your life mm-hmm. as a priest and how those assumptions may be misplaced and, and perhaps how accurate they might be. Yeah. Um, most people aren't bold enough to actually share what their assumptions are, so I'm sure that I disappoint them all the time or at least challenge their assumptions, but I don't know how. Um as I said earlier, I think a lot of people don't have any assumptions about clergy at all, which is one that's sort of a new way of being in the world. Um, and and then there's a lot of regional differences. Like I grew up in Seattle, as I said, where there's very low church attendance. So there is a lot more kind of guesswork, probably an imagination involved in what clergy people do. Here in Omaha, with such a big Roman Catholic population, there's then a lot of projection about um, the Roman Catholic Church. So, for example, priests in the Episcopal Church can marry. We have gay and lesbian and transgendered clergy whose ministry is open and celebrated and who are married as well. Um, We have priests of every, you know, there's a real diversity at the altar, which is a difference. Um, so obviously those types of questions are ones that I'm asked really quickly. Are you allowed to get married? Are you allowed to have children? Stuff like that. And then my age, so I'm not that young, but I sometimes maybe look a little bit younger than I am. And when I put on a clerical collar, it can be even more striking for people. So people wonder about that. Like I'm the Doogie Hauser of Episcopal priests. Like I... <laughs> Once I've got a seminary right out of junior high or something. Um, and other than that, I don't know. What, well, what are your assumptions? What do you think when you meet clergy people? I tend to admire the commitment that is given to a sense of purpose of, of mm-hmm. something beyond themselves. I am inherently cynical. I don't know how much of that is my background or me or I'm a Gen Xer, but I'm inherently cynical of um the organization of belief. Mm-hmm. And maybe that speaks to a libertarian streak in me. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being a jerk. I'm, no. I'm not sure. Um, so I always assume a great amount of commitment and devotion, but also a flawed human being behind the dog collar. Um, and I admire both, especially when the you know the priest, whoever that person is, also acknowledges that inherently they, they have to be a flawed individual mm-hmm. and they're not going to pretend to be otherwise. Yeah. So that that's usually how I approach it. Yeah. Well, that feels pretty accurate to me. <laughs> <laughs> not all faiths are as open to female clergy mm-hmm. as the Episcopalian. And I'm curious about how you feel about being uh, a female member of the clergy and if you've had any experiences that would – you know, maybe just in inform a conversation around female clergy, whether mm-hmm. within your faith or in other faith traditions. Sure. Yeah. Th- so the Episcopal Church started ordaining women in the mid 70s. You know, that was around the same time as Vatican II. That was when a lot of uh, Christian traditions were rewriting their prayer books. There was just a lot of um, kind of renovation happening across Christendom at that time. And in the Episcopal Church, it had to do with um, a sacramental understanding that as soon as you're a, as you're baptized, every other sacrament of the church is available to you. That w- in baptism, we believe that we all become members of the body of Christ. We're all utterly equal in that way. So um, it made sense then that all of a sudden every 
other um, sacrament would be available to every baptized person. And really, that's one reason why we were able to come to same-sex marriage a lot faster than other denominations were, too, is that kind of core theology. So I grew up in an Episcopal church that had um, women in leadership pretty much for my entire life. So it was not unusual for me to see women priests. It wasn't hard for me to imagine myself as a priest because of that. But I understand now that that was pretty unusual, that there are still places across the country in the Episcopal Church that have not had that experience, um, that people haven't even ever met a woman priest. So that has been sort of a learning curve for me to remember that oftentimes when people meet me, it can be a little bit of a surprise sometimes. And, you know, we, I would say that we have found as a church that you are only stronger, you are only more faithful, you are only better when all of the gifts of all of your people are celebrated and recognized. And we're still living into that. Like any other profession, sadly, there's still a really big pay gap between women priests and male priests. It's a funny thing that like you wouldn't expect, or maybe you would, <laughs> I guess, but it's we're only now uncovering it and getting to the roots of that. I think that I've only, you know, I've mainly had really positive experiences as a priest in the church, but there are still times where I feel like, and again, I think this is true in almost every profession, when I enter a room, I still, there's still some people to whom I have to prove my ability to be there, I guess. And the longer that you're in relationship with people, the easier that gets, but um, it's still a reality for us. I was going to ask a question a little later about how businesses now may be somewhat like religious organizations and vice versa, how some religious organizations may be a little like businesses. But I feel like that segue should happen now because it occurs to me you're talking about gender wage disparity and discrimination, mm -hmm. which is just absurd, it, it, it seems to me. And to hear you say that in your experience is quite surprising to me. And of course, we are recording in the midst of a um, Me Too movement, mm -hmm. and you know, given some of the scandals around uh, the Catholic Church, the idea of harassment within the organized church is one that seems almost probable, let alone um, you know believable. What is your view in terms of how like religious organizations and businesses are in contemporary mm -hmm. times? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, the first thing that people need to know about churches as communities of people is that they're just communities of people. So, even when a church is striving to be at its very best, there are failures and flaws and sins. You know, that's sort of where we live, <laughs> is, is knowing about our own brokenness and acknowledging it. So, in one way, you know, churches, every individual congregation— in my tradition at least, is is really just a small nonprofit. So there's business sense that you need to have. There's a kind of savviness about um, finances, for example, and property and managing resources that it would just make no sense to ignore that, to say we're a church so I don't have to think about money. That's not real. In terms of the sin and brokenness of human beings that is often – expressed in corporations, um, that certainly happens in churches and not in every church and not all the time. 
but it is a reality of, you know, there's a parallel conversation to the Me Too movement that's a church too movement. And lots of people have experienced sexual harassment and misconduct in churches of various kinds. And some of it is professional gender-based discrimination, the types that we were just talking about. And some is more severe and egregious uh, sexual misconduct and assault. And churches, unlike other maybe publicly held corporations, for example, um, have an ability to sweep things under the rug in a pretty dangerous way. Uh, I think we all learned that, you know, in the last years with the Catholic Church. So it's all of our responsibilities to shine a light on that. And I feel like that's happening. We're moving in the right direction and have made strides in the past about uh, mandated reporting, for example, and avenues for for justice for people who have experienced that. But the church is not immune from that type of brokenness. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is the Reverend Canon Liz Easton. It also occurs to me, too, that businesses themselves are doing their utmost to try and imbue the field, the industry, the work of being in business with a sense of purpose so that that community of people also has some sense that they're working towards something that is bigger and more meaningful and mm-hmm. to them. And they seem to be borrowing from 
the aspirational elements of religious life and practice. Yeah, to me, I watched the Super Bowl last night, mainly for the commercials, as I do. And it was striking to me how many corporations would have these very inspirational, like big inspirational messages about equality or, you know, the dignity of all people or even in one case, using the voice of Martin Luther King, you know, one of America's greatest preachers ever over, um, you know, a corporate selling of a object. That was really interesting to me because sometimes the connection between the business that was telling this story and the story that it was telling, there's no connection whatsoever. That feels really icky to me. And in the church, at least I hope we have a consistent message. <laughs> like this is, our, this is our thing. You know, if you want to talk about the dignity of every person, if you want to talk about justice for all, if you want to talk about marching in the streets for civil rights alongside Martin Luther King, that's the church's story. And we're really not selling anything. We're just offering it. I think that the fact that those types of ad campaigns are becoming more popular, they're obviously making money. Otherwise, they wouldn't make them. It tells me that people are longing for more um, obvious ways to make meaning in their lives. And um, the answer does not need to be multinational corporations. Your bio-references, your falling in love with in some ways the um the nebraska that that you minister to mm-hmm. and and you talk about small places and big landscapes yeah and so tell me more about that yeah sure so my ministry right now i work um in the office of the bishop of nebraska and we have 53 congregations across the entire state so that means that i am on the road a lot within the state of nebraska which is really my adopted home i've lived here for less than 10 years um, and so that's 77,000 square miles. And I would say I drive about 40,000 miles a year just doing that work. So it's a lot of time on the road. And I'm very much a person who's connected to places like, you know, physical, geographical places, landscapes. And I grew up, of course, around mountains and water and tons of trees. And then I moved here where there's really tons of sky. And at first it felt um, a little unsettling for me because the horizon is actually different. Your orientation to the earth is actually different when you can see the horizon all the way around you. It's not obscured by mountains or different types of elevation. So that has been a really beautiful thing to discover, um, just a different way of being in the world related to the land. So that's a thing that I love. I love the sunrises and sunsets, moonrises and moonsets that are just entirely different here. The sand hills of Nebraska, which people told me were beautiful, and I was kind of like, okay, how how great can they be? And then the first time I really got out into the middle of the sand hills, it's just I mean, awe-inspiring in the most, you know, the purest sense. And then the people, the the lived experiences of people in those places reflect all of that. You know, if you um there is a something particular about your orientation to God, the creator, for example, if you are aware of your smallness in relationship to creation. And you can't not be aware of it when you're standing in the middle of the sandhills. That's kind of all that you're aware of is scale. So I see that reflected in the people that I work with and serve in greater Nebraska. And also the the primacy of of creation in terms of the crops growing 
or being destroyed in some disaster, um, you know, caring for uh, cattle and other livestock. There's this way of being tied to the rhythms of nature that feels really, um, I mean, it's cheesy, but it's also really literal. It feels very organic to the people here. And I think it's reflected in their spiritual lives too. This may come across as a trope, but I hear you speaking in a language of the divine in the world around you, mm -hmm. especially in your experience of Nebraska, both the physical and, and um, in terms of the people and the communities that you encounter in this landscape. Yeah, definitely. And for me, that's obviously like context is everything. You know, the travel that I do within the state is traveling to churches and being among church people and talking to them about their churches and about ultimately about their faith and the person of Jesus in their lives. And as a person of faith myself, it's hard to separate that. It's hard to not be awed by, I would, I attribute a beautiful sunset, not just to the shape of the earth and the size of the sun, but also to, you know, a God who made it all. It seems to me that, um, being in Nebraska has really influenced and informed your own relationship with with um, the divine. Yeah, yeah, I would say that it has. I mean, and there, when I go back to the Pacific Northwest and then and I'm encountered by that, um, the physical beauty there, it's a similar deal for me. They're just so starkly different from one another. And then, you know, just any bit of traveling will reveal the same thing. So I uh, confess to being something of a sentimental, saccharine romantic. And um, you mentioned Low Church earlier, mm -hmm. and it was only fairly recently that I was reading Barchester Towers, the, the six-volume uh, story set by Anthony Trollope about church life in sort of the 1800s in England. And um, it conjured this whole sense of what uh, life was like at that time and some of the attitudes towards religion. 
but it seems to me as if you also have this literary sense of Nebraska. And I know that you were speaking recently about Willacatha mm-hmm. and Myantania. Um, tell me more about how, how that came to be and, and, and what the, uh, what the um, subject matter was. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so this year is the hundredth anniversary of the publication of my Antonia by Willa Cather, great Nebraska novelist. And this year, the um, Cather archive out of UNL partnered with a program called the cathedral arts project, which is a collaboration between uh, Trinity Episcopal cathedral and St. Cecilia's cathedral here in town to, um, to sort of, have lectures, um, the cathedral lecture series, excuse me, to have lectures often around arts and aesthetics, but also bigger um, kind of social cultural issues. So uh, they hosted a panel, those two organizations hosted a panel at Trinity Cathedral, which was about interreligious dialogue, basically religious difference within Omaha and within Nebraska, but it was using my Antonia as sort of a jumping off point. And I'm, we didn't talk about the book a whole lot, to be honest. It was a great panel, and we mainly talked about about interreligious dialogue. But my Antonia is a great book to be grounded in with that, which is really about it's about a lot of things, but immigration and sort of cross cultural conflict is a big theme in that book. So I, I think the title of your presentation was "Human Connection Across Religious Difference." So in what ways were you discussing the idea of human connection? Yeah, so um, the that was the sub-topic, the sub-line of the, um, of the panel. And the first line was, the prayers of all good people are good, which is a line out of my Antonia. So that was sort of grounding it. We talked about, uh, gosh, it was sort of like a free flowing conversation about human connection. But one of the things that we talked about was whether this issue of what makes me human, what makes me a person, and sort of um, our preoccupation with that question is a uniquely American question. And so we talked about what Christianity in America means as opposed to Christianity elsewhere. What does Islam in America mean versus elsewhere in the world, and whether these questions about even having interreligious conversations at all, you know, why that's important, if that's a uniquely American issue, which, um, you know, the book My Antonia is a lot about Americanization, about how people become Americans, whatever that means for good and for ill. You know, so that's intriguing to me because obviously I can speak from a a non-American experience and context, and I can also speak as an atheist and maybe assert that my sense, and and perhaps this is your sense too, that there are some fundamental aspects of the human experience and the human condition that, that are common across time, across geographies, across experiences, and across faiths, where we all want to have a sense of belonging. We all want to have a sense of intimacy with another human. Um, but we want to connect deeply with other people. I would also argue maybe that we also want to believe that there is an act towards something that is beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that seems resonant with you or if that was not something that came out of that discussion. It definitely resonates with me. And one of the things that I would have been interested in, we just couldn't get to it, was when we talk about most interreligious dialogue in my life doesn't have to do with talking with um, Muslims or 
with Buddhists, for example, about um, what faith means to me, those conversations are quite easy for me to have. And sort of as a professional religious person, I'm in environments where I get to talk to a really faithful Muslim about their faith. And we, what we share in common is the fact that we have a religious faith. In my life, um, more broadly speaking, the conversations that I have and that are more difficult to have are with folks who are um, who don't have religious faith at all, and then sort of trying to to find a meeting place where we can live in just those things that you just mentioned about connection and and intimacy and striving for something bigger. You know, how do you does that count as interreligious dialogue? I think it does in the broadest sense, but those can be harder conversations to have for whatever reason. I love those conversations. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let's wrap with asking about popping collars. Oh, sure. Which is a fantastic, fantastic title for the podcast. <laughs> um, but give us a sense of it and what what people might encounter when they go and uh, subscribe to download it uh, from iTunes and other places you get yeah. podcasts, right? Yep, absolutely. Thank okay. you. So Popping Collars is a podcast that I co-host with um, – three other friends from seminary and then we ha we have guests on every week and basically the origin of this show was that you know seminary like any graduate school can be kind of like a heady time where you're sort of striving for this perfect academic or in our case academic and spiritual experience well i had this group of friends in seminary who we were also the ones who got together to watch all the award shows together saw movies all the time um, we sort of had a foot planted in another place and then we all went our separate ways. And eventually, um, sometimes we would get together and have like live, we would live tweet an award show or something like that. And, um, someone, uh, Greg, who really ho hosts and produces the show came up with this idea of trying a podcast about the intersection of religion and pop culture. So we just do that. We get together, um, you know, virtually every two weeks to have conversations about that. And they run the gamut from sort of broader cultural issues like, say, uh, internet bullying might be one that we've done before. Or they'll be very specific about a particular movie or TV show. And we just sit around and talk about it. Sometimes it we really struggle to make that a religious or spiritual conversation. That's fine because we're good friends who just happen to have the, this um, kind of origin story in common. And then sometimes it'll be really deeply personally spiritual. It's just been super fun. It's been a great gift to my life. And as you know, like these things are kind of a lot of work, for, <laughs> but it's, it's been tons of fun. So yeah, popping collars. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a closing thought? I always used to like on the BBC, there was um, a closing sort of prayer offered by uh, different faith-based priests. And um, so I'm just wondering if you have a, a final observational comment or inspirational message to share with us. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. I know it is, yeah. isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess one thing that I could share is that in the last year, and really now more than a year, um, that our country has found itself in this deeply bitter um, world of division um, around politics, certainly, but around so much else. I have been struck by how churches, and really, I believe, I'm sure it's true for every religious organization, community of any kind, um, have been really 
faithfully working that out in their communities. And it doesn't mean that it isn't painful. It has been painful. In a community of any size, you are shoulder to shoulder with somebody who voted for somebody different than you did. And I've just been struck by how, um, by the weekly, you know, weekend and week, week out pattern of coming to the same table together and loving one another, bringing each other food when you're sick, watching each other's kids, that type of thing is um, bringing people together in a pretty profound way that in our larger communities where you commute by a car to your office and then you leave your office and you commute back to your suburb and it's just you and maybe your partner and your smartphone, it's a lot harder to like hash that stuff out. So one thing that I would commend to people as uh, it might sound a little too hopeful, but if you're wondering about how to um, heal some of these divisions and like, it's not easy, but like work it out looking for communities of people, whether they're grounded in faith, like my community is, or, um, or not, communities of people where you're really rolling up your sleeves and are kind of shoulder to shoulder in this moment is one way I think that we're going to get through this. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with the Reverend Canon Liz Easton. Liz, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Cut. All right. Thanks, <clears throat> Stuart. That was really fun. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>